academic calling Susan Stokes Chapman. In Susan Stokes Chapman's debut novel, Pandora, Dora Blake is a talented jewelry designer who lives under the thumb of her odious uncle, who is running her late parents' beloved shop of antiquities into the ground. When he begins acting erratically after a mysterious Greek vase is delivered and locked in the basement, Dora enlists the help of Edward Lawrence, a young antiquarian scholar who sees the vase as an opportunity to unlock his academic future. Dora hopes to restore the shop to its former glory, to find a future for her own elegant artistic designs, and to escape the iniquitous plans her uncle has in store for her. But what Edward claims to discover about the vase unravels everything Dora knows about her life, her family, and the antiquities in the basement. As she begins to uncover the truth, she realizes that some mysteries are buried for a reason, and that others are closer to the surface than they appear. We spoke with Susan about how she put together a Greek myth and Georgian London, about the themes of anxiety and fear running throughout her novel and what that does to her characters, and about her protagonist, Dora Blake. Pandora would be great required reading in a creative writing course about writing historical fiction, in intra-level composition courses, and in courses focusing on women in literature, and I'm sure quite a few others. Susan's novel goes on sale on Tuesday, January 17th, 2023, in paperback original format. It is also available as an ebook and an audiobook from Harper Books. So today on the podcast, we have Susan Stokes Chapman, who is the author of Pandora. Susan, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. So let's start with you telling us a little bit about um, your novel. It is a loose reinterpretation of the myth of the same name. So how about you tell us a bit about how you got the idea, why you use the Pandora myth as your jumping off point, and what attracted that to you? Sure. I mean, the kind of idea of Dora herself, she kind of just popped into my head alongside Hermes, the magpie, pretty much at exactly the same time. And then the Pandora myth, it kind of popped up at a similar sort of time, but I hadn't connected to the two at that point. But I, I liked the concept. The one thing I am going to point out is that the word that you said earlier, reinterpretation, is the best one. This isn't a ancient Greek myth retelling. This is absolutely a reinterpretation because obviously I'm taking the Greek myth and placing it into 18th century London. And it's one of those kind of questions that I've been asked quite a bit. Well, how on earth did you even conceive of that? Why would you put those two things together? And the answer is it was actually surprisingly easy. Um, I liked the the kind of element of the myth in terms of Pandora herself, how she opened a box, so to speak, and she uh, was essentially punished for her curiosity. I found that whole idea very, very compelling. But first of all, I had to consider, as I said, how to get a Greek myth into Georgian London. So the first thing I actually did was familiarise myself with the Greek myth itself. And it was a case of a bit of a root, kind of a Google rabbit hole, really, that where this whole kind of thing happened in the sense that um, basically I found out that this box, the one that we assume held all the, the, the evils of the world, you know, it, that it was a box, we assume that, 
but I ended up reading that Pandora's box, it was never a box at all, but actually it was a vase. So the it turns out that box was a mistranslation, and that was because the eight, the 16th century philosopher Erasmus, when he translated Hesiod's tale of Pandora into Latin, the word pithos, which means a large storage jar of vase, was translated into the word pixis. So I forgive the if I've said that incorrectly, but Pixis basically means box. So when I found that it was a vase and not a box, that kind of made making the myth appear into Georgian London very, very easy. The Georgians absolutely adored the ancient world. And that's very, very apparent through their fashions, through their jewellery. So cameos are a good example of that. So many of the profiles on a cameo have a very Greek-esque sort of look. Uh, many of the um, imagery drew on Greek myths, such as the Muses. Wedgwood was a massive um, po popular form of um, kind of pottery at, at that time as well. And uh, he drew on the Greek myths in a lot of his designs. And then there's the architecture. So many of the 18th century buildings have beautiful kind of Doric or Ionic kind of columns that basically draw a lot on the the beautiful architecture of the of the period such as the kind of lovely filigree sort of curves or the meandros borders um i know i'm kind of going on a little bit here but the, the reason why i am is because it was just so clear that the georgians loved this kind of ancient architecture and this was again a very very apparent in their love of collecting antiquities. And this is where we come to the cups of the question here. So in Pandora, my novel, there is a character named William Hamilton. He is not made up, he was a real character. And he basically collected for many, many years, Greek vases. Uh, he was an extensive collector. He lived in Naples uh, for many, many years. He acted as the uh, British envoy and worked under King Ferdinand. And Napoleon was starting to look at invading uh, Naples. And so for safety, and this is the irony of it, William sent all of his vase collection off to England and he shipped them on the HMS Colossus with the idea that he would follow a few uh, days after and unfortunately that ship actually sank just off the Isles of Scilly and that was how it happened I thought well this is this is brilliant there's a bunch of Greek vases ancient Greek vases just kind of lying at the bottom of the sea how can we get them off offshore and it just kind of turned into that. So it's a very kind of long, convoluted answer for you. But there's so many different strands and threads. And it was such a pleasure to research, basically, for to actually kind of find a way to make all of this work and for it to work within reason as well. I didn't just randomly decide to do this. Each kind of element fitted perfectly for me. So, yeah, but that's essentially what happened. It's a very, very long answer. I apologize. No, 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 no. It's fine. No, that, that's that's really great, because I think one of the things that I think people are curious about when it comes to historical fiction is how do we get how do we get the history into the fiction sure. um, and, and what elements can we play with? Um, where is there is there a, a sort of a natural jumping off point? That was a bad water pun, which I didn't really mean, <laughs> but I think it's really I think it's really interesting that you 
you had an actual shipwreck to work with. So you could sort of have the task of uh, literally pulling it out of the sea, for lack of a lack of a better, yeah. fl- better, better phrase. But what attracted you to the Georgian period? Because it didn't, I mean, the, the architecture um, and all of sort of their kind of built-in fascination with the ancient world completely makes sense. They weren't the only ones, the Georgians, um, to be thus obsessed. So why why Georgian London in particular? Well, my obsession with the Georgian period, I have to give you a very cliched answer here, is basically because in 1995, I watched the BBC adaptation of Pride and Prejudice. Now, I'm <laughs> nice. I must have been nine or ten at the time. And I was completely drawn in by the romance of it and the beauty and as a, as a child, I was looking at it through very much rose-tinted glasses. You know, I, I wasn't even considering the people, the, the layman's, you know, people in real life, so, so to speak, because mm-hmm. Pride and Prejudice and many period dramas of the era, Bridgerton being a massive example, they're very much focused on the upper echelon of society. But by watching that adaptation of Pride and Prejudice that encouraged me to research into the period more and over the years I started reading a lot of novels set in that era and started reading non-fiction as well and eventually when I went to university I chose modules that were relevant to the Georgian period the Romantics so Keats, Byron, Shelley and in terms of why George and London specifically during that um, master's in creative writing at university where I was learning about all these romantics there was a essayist a real life man named William Hazlitt <laughs> he was essentially the forerunner of, of the first jur- journalist essentially um, you know he rubbed shoulders with with Keats Byron didn't like him at all but he was a very compelling man who was incredibly clever and incredibly intelligent but he didn't have a very good emotional track record he basically ended up having a bit of an appropriate inappropriate obsession with his landlady's daughter and that lady was named Sarah Walker and the love affair kind of carried on for about three or four years until she finally rejected him and in his anguish he wrote a book called the Libra Amoris and the reason why I'm saying this is because that actually ended up being my first novel which I have since shelved but I did want awful lot of research regarding that so the whole story played out in Hoburn uh, in in London and so my research in terms of the grittiness and the real kind of streets or you know basically a whole story that's not set within palaces or stately homes this was the salt of the earth so to speak and all of my research essentially came from that and much of it did end up kind of going into Pandora so no work is ever wasted so even if you shelve a novel all that writing is so rich and useful for you later but that was why George in London it just I didn't want to waste the research I suppose more out of personal curiosity than anything else um, because it was a book that I liked when I was in graduate school but did you one of the non-fiction books for George in London did you read oh god now I'm gonna <laughs> now I'm gonna now I'm gonna get it now I'm probably gonna get it wrong is it is it getting into the streets oh into the streets Lucy Ingram. into the, yes yes yeah yeah it is on is it on my shelf it was actually one of um three I used as main ones so uh Right. The other one was um, 
George in London and Its Secrets, which is uh, yep. by Dan Creekshank. That's not the full title. But the other one was Dr. Johnson's London by Liza Picard. So those three are really excellent starting points, I think, for anybody who is interested in George in London. The George Creekshank one especially really kind of goes in depth about the seedy kind of underbelly of George in London. They're fascinating reads. And I do have a uh, an article on Shepherd Books, actually, if um, your readers want to look, look it up, where I have actually listed my kind of five favourite books on, on, on the Georgians that you should absolutely read if you're either interested in the era or want to write about the era. No, that's that's good. And that's good to know. And I, I sorry, Lucy, I, I mangled your book title. Um, she's a, she's a lovely she's a lovely person and I completely mangled her book title. All right. One of the things thematically that really interested me about Pandora was this idea of hidden anxieties, because there are a lot of characters who are hiding something or wanting to hide something or fear is maybe not their mo but fear, but fear is a big part fear is a big part of their lives like lottie is in fear of returning to the brothel dora kind of has that anxiety because of her horrible uncle her horrible uncle is is horrible and he's also probably afraid of debt collectors even though he doesn't really want to admit it cornelius is afraid of being outed but fear is also something that is manifest around the idea of the unknown. We know that Edward is afraid of the dark for good reason, um, because he had a horrible, horrible experience. Why was fear and fear or the idea of of creating anxiety? Why was that something that was very fruitful for you for this for this book, for how you're sort of working with um, the history and this idea of antiquities? It seems that anxiety and fear or fear, it doesn't have to be a both and. Um, but it seems like that was a very interesting idea and concept for you to play with throughout this book. That is such an interesting question. I've never been asked a question like that at <laughs> all. So I had to kind of, I have to kind of really think about this answer. Um, I don't think I deliberately set out to, to do that. Um, but I think most characters need to have some element of fear in order to drive them. So Edward is determined that he's going to make it as a, a scholarly antiquarian. So and he has that fear basically of being stuck in a rut. And so, of course, that drives him to make those choices. And for Dora, uh, she is essentially a hero in her own right. If we kind of go back to the myth of Pandora for briefly, I mentioned earlier that uh, curiosity for Pandora was essentially considered a sin. And I wanted my Dora, I wanted her curiosity to be a strength. And it's her fear, I suppose, again, of, of staying where she is, of either being shipped off to a brothel herself or just essentially being being stuck under the thumb of somebody else. She wants that. She wants that strength. She wants that freedom. She wants to be able to rise above everybody. And the men in the novel who do aid her in some form or another, even Lady Latimer, as a very strong and interesting um, older character matriarch, um, she certainly helps. But every single decision that Dora has made it, she's made it on her own. She is the one that's pushed the story and driven it right from start to finish. 
And yes, she is definitely driven on fear. I think characters absolutely need that sense of purpose. And I think fear drives them. But it is definitely a note on human nature. I think we're all like that. Um, I continue writing, I suppose, because I don't see myself as doing anything else. Aside from potentially teaching creative writing, which um, I have done briefly in the past, and it's something I I would actually quite like to pursue later. But I think my career has to revolve around writing in some form or another. And the idea of going back to a nine to five where (laughs) I felt very much in in my 20s when I was um, working the the nine to five. And it wasn't always nine to five either. It could be, um, you know, seven days a week at ungodly hours sometimes I almost felt as if my brain cells were were slowly depleting one by one and it was that ultimate fear of again being stuck in that rut and and sticking where I was and not achieving any of my dreams that made me keep pushing forward so I think I think in all novels in some form or another there is that element of driving oneself to better themselves because of that fear of of staying still so yeah, I think it must have just been a natural process for me to write characters like that. One of the things that I found very exciting about Dora's curiosity is her insistence that she she work. I think one of the things that I really liked about Dora so much is that even though she even though she was in a world that was primarily populated with a lot of men, Mm -hmm. Um, she was very insistent that she would make her way and gain her independence under her own steam, um, which I, which I thought was great. Um, and I also, now that I'm sort of spinning this out loud, as opposed to like at a desk, um, with my notebook and my small ruler for, to underline my book, but, um, also thinking about the fact that it was first, um, and I guess unsurprisingly, a woman, it was Lady Latimer, who who was kind of her her way out um, yeah. in that in that sense. But um, she wants to she wants to work. She wants to make a name for herself. And one of the things that I appreciated as as her character's arc um, and, and as a plot arc is that we do get we do get a marriage um, or at least the announcement of a marriage um, in in the book. But it very much is presented as, um, and I don't mean this negatively at all, but it is very much presented as kind of an afterthought and like an, yep. oh, yes, and this also happened. Um, and I, that made my little heart swell because I was so I was so happy that she got to she got to succeed in the thing that she most wanted, which is gain her independence under her own work. And she she flat out um, at one point says to Edward, um, I don't need you. Something like, I this is going to be a terrible paraphrase. Um, I don't need you. I need to do this where I want to do this myself. Um, why have Dora... Why have Dora want so so very badly to do it herself? Why was that question and attainment of her independence under her own steam so important for you to give to this character okay two reasons number one is to again readdress the myth of pandora um in greek myth they're very misogynistic stories women are either written as villains or victims neither of which i wanted this dora 
to be. So I wanted to give the Pandora of myth agency through Dora Blake. So that was the one reason. But I think the other reason is that I think I had to be realistic in the sense of this is 18th century London. <laughs> Women weren't given a lot of agency. Um, I think they were very much under the thumb of a man most of the time anyway. That there, w- there would have been um, some who, who made their way in the world and fought for it. And I wanted Dora to be one of those one of those few that, that did that to kind of almost subverse the idea that women were weak and didn't have any sort of agency whatsoever. I wanted to demonstrate that even then women were strong and independent and even though they had to kind of still work within the rules so to speak of the era that they'd been born into I that you know that that there was still a possibility for them to have you know to, to make their mark I wanted Dora Blake to be the hero of her own story um without giving too much away near the end of the novel uh, she is the one that comes to the rescue, so to speak. She never needs rescuing herself. Um, again, everything is always her decision. She is the catalyst for everything. I didn't want her to, I, I didn't want to write this strong character and then have her romanced off and uh, then kind of put into this little kind of cotton ball which is what I suppose many of us expect from a lot of these um, stories. You know, there is an element of romance in the story, but that was not what the story was about. And I didn't want her to lose that agency or that independence or that that victory just by ending up with a man at the end of it. So, yes, I suppose it was a slight afterthought. I knew that I'd have um, readers rooting for these two characters and I wanted to at least kind of give them that reward there was one point where I I thought to myself do I even need that do I need to have that romance in there at all and I a part of me I think did actually want to leave it out because I, I, I didn't want that there at all but at the same time I kind of grew to to really kind of like these two characters together and it just it just felt right really for them in the end but again I think Dora rules the roost and in that marriage she probably wears the trousers anyway I just like the idea of it I wanted that kind of girl power essence where we as readers and I I suspect the majority of my readership will be female are going to go yes come on well done finally you've got what you deserve was there something during the process of writing Pandora that came to surprise you about the book hmm this is an odd one. I mean, I think that novel that I told you about previously, the one with William Hazlitt, I spent 10 years from start to finish thinking about researching and writing the novel. It didn't take me 10 years to write the novel, but it was a 10 year kind of stretch of my life that was probably an unhealthy obsession in terms of I shouldn't have spent that long on this one idea. Pandora, from conception, research and you know, first draft, it took 10 months. Oh, wow. Okay. And I was 
which I'm calling this my fluke novel, actually, because in comparison, the second novel I'm working on at the moment has taken 22 months even to get to some sort of first draft. And it's still an absolute mess and it needs rewriting. So what with the first novel in this technically third, but really second novel, those have been quite difficult and those have surprised me. Whereas Pandora, I think I was extremely clear on exactly how I wanted the novel to go. Um, the draft that I ended up sending to my agent isn't too far different from the published edition that you have now. So in a way, the answer is no. It just everything seemed to click and fall into place with Pandora without much effort at all. And like I said, I, I don't re I really don't know how that's happened. Um, and I think I'm making up for the for that lack of issue now with with this second book I think it's like you know what we're going to actually give you all the heartache that should have come with the first one and put it into the second one along with the heartache that is necessary for writing a book anyway so yeah it, it, it I'd love to answer that question honestly you know honestly and say oh yes this happened but no it was just a very lovely organic process with Pandora and it just seemed to everything just fell into place that's that's good that's good yeah. <laughs> that's good so my last question for you is a question that we ask all of the guests on our podcast and you can, I leave it to you to define how I'm going to ask the question. But since the, since we're primarily gearing this podcast towards um, teachers, who was your favorite teacher? Oh, oh gosh. Do you mean somebody personal to me? or just It can be, it can be however you choose to define it. I don't think I could ever possibly choose just one. There were so many uh, teachers in my own life who I think were elemental in me kind of falling in love with with fiction. There was nobody in primary school specifically, but I do remember um, my English teacher at senior school, uh, so high school, uh, whenever she set short stories to write, I would always end up writing far more than was absolutely necessary. And that's probably something I still do now. And yet I never got told off for it. She was always very, very encouraging. I said, oh, I can tell you're a big reader. Um, and there were quite a few university professors who were very, very supportive of me as well. And I think that support, especially as a writer or any kind of creative, is paramount. I think criticism, as long as it's constructive, is massively helpful. I think something that's what we all need. but I think if a teacher is can see potential and are willing to nurture that, whether it's by working closely with the student or just by general encouragement, I, th I think that's a wonderful, wonderful thing. In terms of a fictional teacher, I'd have to say Anne of Green Gables. Anne Shirley. She, the Ellen Montgomery book was the first definitive book I remember reading that made me fall in love with reading. And I found such a connection with this girl because... A part of me still is like that. But as a child, I was very much like Anne, a, a daydreamer, very much in my imagination, far too romanticised. I've uh, got a bit more of a level head on my shoulders now. But I recognise much of her in me or me in her, so to speak. But obviously she ended up being a writer, but she also ended up being an English teacher as well. And it was just a joy to watch her develop through all of the all of the novels. And I think in terms of fictional teachers, she's definitely my favourite. Awesome. That's a that's a really it's a really great answer. So Susan, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me, Kim. I really enjoyed it.